Thank you very much, Jim, for your welcome back. It is uh, really terrific to be here with you all. Well, you might like to go back to that reading from Jonah chapter 3. It's sometimes said that the most difficult thing for the Christian church today is to get people to believe. But I think the opposite is true. G.K. Chesterton once observed, when a man or a woman stop believing in God, they don't then believe in nothing, they believe anything. So consider what's happened in our Western world. The age of enlightenment and reason that dominated Western culture for more than 400 years has given way to the influence of literary deconstruction and postmodernism. Society is now driven more by emotion than reason. News interviewers regularly ask successful athletes or someone who has tragically lost a loved one, how do you feel? Values and behavior in society are increasingly shaped by whether you have hurt someone's feelings. Furthermore, in this postmodern climate, no group can claim that it has the truth, for it said that objective truth does not exist. So the outcome, as we see around us, is diversity and fragmentation. Life, its meaning and values, is increasingly defined by self-interest. It follows that there are no absolute, no absolute morality or norm to guide or assess human behavior. And yet there's an irony. As Robert Letham in his book, The Holy Trinity, observes, postmodernism asks us to accept for itself what it denies to everything and to everyone else. It denies and deconstructs absolute truth claims, yet its own claims are absolute, excluded from the relativism that are foists on the assertions of others. However, as Lesson, Lethem observes, postmodernism cannot stand the test of everyday life. It does not work, and it will not work. Lethem points out that it fails the test of Ludwig Wittgenstein, who insisted that language and philosophy must have a cash value in terms of the real world in which we go about our business from day to day. To do that, we must assume that there is an objective world and act accordingly. Wittgenstein compared such a situation to someone buying several copies of the morning paper to assure himself that what it said was true. How then can we live in a world of diversity where there is no unifying principle? A world where everyone is pursuing their own agenda and ethical principles are framed by my rights. More than ever, we need to have a clearer understanding of the God of the Bible. Increasingly, as we turn the pages from Genesis through Revelation, we see that God is triune. One God in three persons, unity in diversity, diversity in unity. 
And when we begin to grasp this understanding of God, our worship, our church life will become richer and our lifestyle and witness in the wider community will become more attractive, drawing others to want to know what it is that has so changed us for the better. So come with me uh, with these thoughts in mind uh, to this chapter from Jonah, a chapter that some commentators say is the record of the most successful mission in history. And while there are some 750 years before we learn the more definitive details of God in Trinity, we can read back through the lens of the New Testament and see the evident work of at least two of the three persons of the one God. So let me identify three great themes that we find in this chapter. First, God's word. Second, God's justice. Thirdly, God's mercy. So first, God's word. Just have a look again at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. In the mid-8th century BC, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was a time when the Assyrian Empire was at its height. The city was encircled by immense walls 100 feet high. Its peoples were numerous, its armies and weaponry second to none. And the Assyrian army had a reputation for ruthlessness in the way it waged war. Conquered armies were cut to pieces, bodies displayed on cities' walls, quite literally. Well, you may be aware that the northern kingdom Israel was destroyed by the Assyrian forces around 722 BC. But some 40 years before that conquest, God had sent his prophet Jonah to Nineveh. And according to at least one commentator, prophets in the ancient world were often viewed as having an importance similar to that of an ambassador because they represented a god. They enjoyed diplomatic immunity and court status. In which case, Jonah's visit would be similar to that of a foreign dignitary visiting and speaking at public functions here in New York or in D.C. today. Well, of course, the significant difference is the nature of Jonah's message. He was to announce God's word concerning the destruction of the city of Nineveh. And even if he had diplomatic status, Jonah's task was a challenge. As a Jewish prophet, he might have relished the opportunity to tell the Ninevites that their city was going to be destroyed. Hurrah! Jonah was certainly well aware of the ruthlessness and the cruelty of the Assyrians. And even if he had diplomatic status, he could well have been thrown out of the city and told never to return. Or even worse. And that brings us to a second theme, God's justice. Just have a look at verse 4. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Was this all that Jonah said? Probably not. These words certainly go to the heart of what he said. 
But in the same way that we have summary statements of sermons preached by the apostles in the book of Acts, it's fair to assume that these words of Jonah's are a summary of his message. But what a message. Like Paul the Apostle when he spoke to the intelligentsia in Athens, that we read about in Acts chapter 17, Jonah may have developed his presentation by pointing out that the God who created the universe is also the judge of all men and women of all nations. Uh, Perhaps Jonah also gave his testimony, as Amy's been doing this morning, telling how he at first had disobeyed his commission, but how God, the hound of heaven that he is, had unexpectedly intervened. We can imagine Jonah recounting his experience of the storm, three days in a big fish, and his rescue. We can imagine him pressing the point that this was a God with whom you didn't want a mess. Jonah was telling the Ninevites that we live in a moral universe and that every one of us is ultimately accountable to a just and holy God. This whole idea of God's justice is something that we tend to put aside or even reject these days because it's unpalatable and certainly politically incorrect. If there is a God, we like to think he won't judge us. Yes, he's going to deal with people like Stalin and Hitler, Idi Amin, Pol Pot. But God, for the most part, providing we have lived a pretty good life and had a faith, will welcome us to any afterlife that might exist. God will forgive. That's his job. So some people say. But friends, it doesn't work like that. The book of Jonah is telling us that this, the same God is Lord not just of the Jewish people, but of all men and women. Every human being, every one of us, has been created in the image of the one creator God, and we're all accountable to him and to his son, Jesus Christ. So in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 following, we read, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the terrific thing is, God has not left us in the dark about a day of final judgment. For at the conclusion of his public ministry, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And furthermore, in Acts chapter 17, that sermon that I referenced a moment ago, we read the substance of Paul's words to the academics in Athens. Having drawn attention to the altar to the unknown God found in the city of Athens, Paul went on to speak of the living God who created heaven and earth. And in the course of his address, Paul also cleverly quotes Greek poets, implying that there are some things that non-biblical writers get right. 
However, that fact doesn't mean that everyone, whatever they believe, is automatically rescued and redeemed. Paul goes on to conclude with these rather telling words. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he's given proof of this to all people by raising him from the dead. Now anyone who reads this carefully will feel the impact of Paul's word. But now God commands men and women everywhere to repent. He set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And we push back and say, oh come on Paul, how can we be sure of that? And Paul anticipates our question as he says, God has given proof of this to all people by raising this judge from the dead. So I'm sure you've noticed key themes that we find here in Jonah. All of us accountable to the Creator God. A day will come when he will judge us with justice. So God's justice is not arbitrary or fickle. He calls us all to account according to how we've responded to him. So in Romans chapter 1, we read these words, although men and women knew God, and Paul's talked about the fact as we look around us, creation, there's the evidence of God being there. Although men and women knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. So to come back to Jonah chapter 3, consider what happened in Nineveh when God's truth was communicated. Verse 5 we read, The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. The Ninevites accepted what Jonah said as being true. But notice, in the way this is written up, they didn't feel it was Jonah's voice they heard. Rather, through Jonah's words, they heard God's voice. And that gives us a hint of what Jesus and the, and the Apostle Paul will set out more clearly in the New Testament. Namely, that it is the work of the Spirit of God who takes the word of God from the lips of the preacher into the very hearts and lives of the hearers. In John chapter 3, Jesus speaks about the necessary work of the Spirit in our lives, giving us new birth within, a new heart and a new desire. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says we cannot profess Jesus as Lord unless the Spirit of God is at work within us. And that, friends, is why we need to pray. Pray for the preaching and teaching of God's Word and the outpouring of God's Spirit in people's hearts and lives today. So they'll hear the clear voice of God, not just through formal preaching and teaching, but even in our one-to-one conversations as well. This was key to the growth and spread of the gospel in the first century AD. In Acts chapter 4 we read, 
all were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So when the Spirit of God is at work within us, it is not our eloquent speech that wins converts. It's the power of God at work. Through Jonah's preaching God's word, and as we later understand, it was through the work of God's spirit alongside Jonah's words, the Ninevites were convicted. It was rather a miracle, wasn't it? Whole city, massive city, capital of the the Assyrians. Imagine what it would be like here in New York City if someone came and preached not just to a small group, but their voice was heard throughout the city with a message of the word of God. In speaking about the judgment to come, Jonah would have talked about the consequences of indifference and rebellion towards God. He would have declared that every one of us in our natural state is subject to God's judgment. This theme runs through all the preaching that we find in the Bible, from the prophets of the Old Testament to Jesus and the apostles in the New. It's a theme we need to recover today. And yet we often shy away from talking about it because we think it sounds unloving and judgmental. But to think about that, or to think this way, is to criticize Jesus because, you know, he actually spoke about judgment and hell more than anyone else in the whole of the Bible. In fact, if you think about it, to warn people around us of God's judgment is, in fact, a God, an act of love. Speaking of someone who's been back in Sydney for a little bit, if you're swimming on an Australian beach and you see a triangular fin out there in the water, you get out and ensure that the shark alarm is sounded loud and long. Jonah's experience in the big fish was a warning to him. Having come through that experience, it's understandable. He was prepared to warn the Ninevites of their impending spiritual disaster. If we haven't thought about these things ourselves, it's unlikely we'll be able or even want to convince others about them. But notice Jonah's words didn't just impact the regular city-siders, as it were, but also royalty. Just have a look at verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. Imagine the mayor of New York doing something like this. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock, shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Jonah's witness led to a changed people 
and a changed city from top to bottom. In our history, the preaching of John Wesley, George Whitfield, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, led to countless numbers of lives being changed under their ministry. Repentance in Jonah's day, repentance today, means not only a heartfelt regret of sin before God, but a heartfelt commitment to turn away from it. And that's what happened in Nineveh all those centuries ago. Even the king adopted the signs of true repentance with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Well, all of this brings us to the third theme, God's mercy. Just have a look at verse 9. Who knows, the king said, God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. So the king's words here expressed a hope that God would show mercy. He hoped that Jonah's God, having sent Jonah to forewarn them of the coming danger, was indeed a God of mercy and grace. After all, the fact that the prophet was there, giving a warning, is surely an act of mercy. The Ninevites put themselves in God's hands. Thought of that? They were like the woman from Syrophoenicia who said to Jesus, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The Ninevites were asking whether God would have crumbs of grace, mercy for them. And look at God's response. It's there in the last verse of the chapter. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Nineveh had been saved, at least for another 150 years. It was, in fact, destroyed in the year 612 BC. However, a day would come when Nineveh, as uh, Nahum, another Jewish prophet, would not just be destroyed, it would never rise again something the archaeologists today are amazed with. Well, important principles that rise from this chapter. So very quickly, God involves his his people as partners in his work. God so worked in Jonah's life that he might work through Jonah. Uh, This in itself didn't guarantee the awakening in Nineveh, but it illustrates the way that God uses us men and women to achieve his purposes. In the same way in the New Testament, God so worked in in Simon Peter's life that he worked through him in the city of Jerusalem and beyond. Just think, his first sermon, 3,000 converts in Jerusalem. So today, God involves us, you and me, to partner with him in introducing others to the good news that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second principle is this. One day we will all stand before the highest court in the universe. Jesus Christ will be the judge. Are you prepared? 
It's urgent that we use the time now to sort out our relationship with God. Friends, it really is a matter of deep offence to God that we try to live without reference to him. It's a matter of deep offence to God that we try to say that this life is all there is. It's a matter of deep offence to God that we say that there is no such thing as truth. We may laugh at the idea of God's supreme court, but if we think about it, judgment gives value and dignity to who we are and what we do. If people steal, hate, murder, and there is no final justice, then life is meaningless. The third principle, God is the Lord whose nature is to show mercy. As Paul said in concluding his address to the Athenian academia, God in his grace is willing to overlook your past ignorance, but now he commands everywhere, people everywhere to repent. Friends, we are all called upon to play our part in God's unfinished task of rescuing more and more people there will be a day of accounting. But to return to my opening remarks about the nature of God, it is because he exists in Trinity, he delights in giving love. Because the central part of the character of God is love. The three persons within the one God love one another. They've been doing that since eternity. God in Trinity delights in giving love, light, and life. As our prayer book service says for the Lord's Supper, our God is the Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. So in this meantime, before the end time, God is merciful to all who turn to him with heartfelt repentance and who long to live a new life following his commands. I conclude with words of C.S. Lewis. All your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you awake to find, beyond all hope, that you have attained it or else that it was within your grasp and you lost it forever.